Well, uh, one of the, the most famous stories of betrayal is the story of Julius Caesar and his best friend Brutus. And, um, and the two of them grew up together and they served together and they kind of made their rise to power together. Um, and they, they, you know, all the different areas, things they went to, they did it together and, um, and they were best friends and they were brothers-in-law and, um, Brutus was the more skilled sword fighter. So, you know, he, he was famous, well-known for his sword fighting ability, but he was always in the shadow of Julius Caesar because of Caesar's. Um, leadership ability and the way he would just draw people to his cause or to what he was purposed toward and people would be drawn to him and they would follow him, his charisma, that the, you know, his leadership ability. And so Brutus was always in the shadows. And so finally, you know, during one period of civil war, um, so Pompey was leading, he was a general leading Roman legions and, and, and Caesar was leading legions and they were going to have this big battle. And, Brutus defects, he goes and joins Pompey and he goes to the other side. And, um, and so there's this huge battle and, um, and Caesar wins Pompey, you know, is on the run and Brutus is wounded in the fight. And so, you know, Caesar comes on the field and finds him and everyone's expecting that he's going to kill him, you know, for this betrayal. And instead Caesar forgives him. And he reinstates him back on his team, you know, and so, and then, so it goes on. And then of course, if you know, the, the uh, fateful day, the Ides of March, when um, Julius Caesar goes into the Senate and he's attacked by the senators. And when he realizes, so this is what they, they say that when he realized that Brutus was among his friend was among the attackers that he, he, he just puts his, his robe over his head and he just was resigned and, um, and they attack him and he said, you know, and, and he's, he's killed, you know, he stabbed 20, 23 times and he dies and Shakespeare immortalizes the moment with that famous phrase, a tu brute, which is Latin, which means, you know, and you Brutus, you know, his shock and his horror as his, as his friend is among those who kill him, betrayed again. And um, William Blake said, it's easier to forgive an enemy than to forgive a friend. Um, Malcolm X said, to me, the thing that's worse than death is betrayal. You see, I could conceive death, but I could not conceive betrayal. Arguably the most famous betrayal in history is that of Judas to Jesus. The disciple of Jesus who betrays him for 30 pieces of silver and he leads the soldiers to where Jesus is. And then in that, you know, very famous moment, gives him the kiss of greeting to identify him to the waiting soldiers. And Jesus says to him, Judas, are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? And then gospel writers um, describe Judas returning the money in shame and guilt and eventually taking his own life. Um, but it isn't just Judas who betrays Jesus. I mean, it's all his disciples break and run and leave him. And Peter among them who denies three times that he ever knew Jesus. And, and so all these things happen. But 
unlike Caesar, Jesus isn't surprised. He doesn't throw his cloak over his head and is like, oh my goodness, I can't believe you guys too. You know, he, he isn't surprised by it. In fact, in fact, he, he sees it coming and he still responds in love. And that's our story today is, is this, you know, they're in the upper room and Jesus again, just is very clear that he knows what's coming and his response is love. So we're going to read John chapter 13 verses 18 to 36 this morning. Uh, So we're in the upper room. Jesus has just washed all of their feet and given them that, you know, command to love one another. And then this is what Jesus says. I am not referring to all of you. I know those I've chosen, but this is to fulfill this passage of scripture. He who shares my bread has turned against me. I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After this, after he said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and said, and testified, very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it's the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. When he was gone, Jesus said, now the son of man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life, my life for you. And then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. This is God's word. Pretty big one. My big idea this morning is that we are commanded to love one another as the greatest apologetic. We are commanded to love one another as the greatest apologetic. This story has betrayers and deniers in it. I mean, that's kind of, it's bookended by betrayer and denier. I mean, that's the two bookends of our, of our section of scripture. But remember, Jesus doesn't walk into an ambush. He's not surprised. He knew 
and he goes willingly. That's that's what he's saying. He foretelling what's going to happen and making it clear that he's willingly going into all of this. Now, one question that comes a lot for a lot of people, and that might come up for you as you as we talk about um, Judas, is why does Judas betray Jesus? And I know I've struggled with this. Many people struggle with. This. How could how could Judas betray Jesus? It just doesn't make sense that someone who was with Jesus, who saw all the miracles Jesus did, you know, people raised from the dead, all the things Jesus did and said, that one of those people would betray Jesus. It just seems it seems crazy. And so different academics and theologians, different people have have suggested different theories because we really don't we don't know. Now, one of those theories which kind of comes to light in our passages is that Satan entered Judas and he's helpless. So that's one theory. So Satan entered Judas. So that's twice this phrase is used in the Bible that Satan entered Judas. So one is our passage. And the other one is in Luke uh, chapter 22, verse three, at the beginning of kind of all the stuff where he takes the money. And, uh, and so people will say, well, well, it's not Judas's fault. He wasn't in control. He was possessed kind of. And so he was. And then once it's over, he's like, he's filled with regret because he just, it, he wasn't in his control. And there are problems with this view. So I will say, you know, we don't believe that Satan or demons can possess you without your permission on some level, at least that Judas has a free will and Satan is limited in his power. And so at some point, Judas has to open himself. He has to open the door to, to all this, to let it in. So, um, you know, Genesis chapter four, verse six, God speaks to Cain in the story of Cain and Abel, where Cain kills Abel right before that God comes to Cain and says this, if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you, but you must rule over it. There's this picture of like, you know, you could open the door or you could keep the door closed. You could, you, your decisions, your, the things you do in life, open the way for the enemy to come in and wreak havoc. And that's the case here. So that's one theory. And there's some issues with it. Another one is that Judas is a revolutionary. This is why he betrays Jesus because you know, he thought that betraying Jesus would get everything started. So he's waiting for Jesus to kind of announce himself as the Messiah and overthrow Rome. And, um, and so betraying Jesus will, will start the conflict. And if the conflict starts, Jesus will announce himself and then they'll overthrow Rome and, you know, it will all be good in the end. And, um, and then when it fails, Judas is anguished because things didn't happen the way he thought Jesus doesn't do that. Now, there are also problems with this theory as well. One of the problems is there's no biblical evidence for that at all. And I will have to say that this is my favorite explanation for Judas, because I'm a, like, I want to believe the best about everyone. And so when I want to believe the best about Judas, I'm like this, he, he had some compelling reason why he would do this. And so I want to believe this, but I will also acknowledge that there's no evidence for this at all. It's just kind of what we, we hope would be a human reason for why Judas would do this, because it's hard to understand why someone would willingly betray Jesus. Now, the third explanation is that 
Judas is just a bad egg, we could call it. He's just, he's just not a good guy. And I don't know why I have a hard time believing that someone could be a manipulative, greedy, selfish thief and be near Jesus. But we do know that not everyone who saw and heard Jesus believed. We know that's true of uh, lots of people who were around Jesus. They didn't all believe and follow him. And although Judas appears to be following him, clearly there's some, he has some issues too. And unfortunately, this is the more comprehensive description in the Bible that we see about Judas, where he's stealing money from the, the, the Jesus donation pot and doing his own thing. And, um, and Jesus has a lot of things he says about Judas. John chapter six, Jesus says, have I not chosen you the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. And then John in, explains he meant Judas in case we aren't sure what he meant. John chapter 17, in a little while from where we are, none, of, none has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. That sounds pretty sketchy, right? Matthew 26, 24, the son of man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to the man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he'd not been born. Now, I mean, this doesn't paint a good picture of Judas. It doesn't. They had lots of chances they could have written about his better motivations or, you know, but they don't. And so it seems like Judas has made choices and he's chosen a side that's not the side where Jesus is. We don't know why he betrays. We just know that he does. And we also know that Jesus knew he would and loved him for three years, had him among his followers. Jesus knew he would betray him and he still washes his feet along with everyone else just a few moments ago in our story. Now, Judas isn't the only one who lets Jesus down. I mean, Peter does too. The difference between Peter and Judas though is significant. And so we should, we should acknowledge it's not the same. Uh, Judas willfully betrays Jesus for money to be disfigured and killed. And Peter, in the heat of the moment, just pretends he doesn't know him. So those are different things. Both of them, we could say, are kind of uh, a way you've let down Jesus, but they're very different things. Judas is consumed by the condemnation and the guilt, and he kills himself. That's his that's how he goes forward. Whereas Peter weeps bitterly and feels guilt, but then he runs to Jesus after the resurrection. He's the one who's jumping in the water and he experiences forgiveness and reinstatement. And so his story is very different. Peter, who's the rock, Peter, who's the mouth before his mind. He says all sorts of things. And, you know, some of them are to his detriment, but Lots of them sound pretty good to me. I mean, Peter's the one who says things like, even if all fall away, I will not. Or even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Or you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. He makes these incredibly profound declarations. And so we could say arguably that maybe the, the, the best or most passionate disciple and the worst the, the one who's stealing from the kitty, you know, both of them let Jesus down. Both of them fail him in different ways, in different moments. And for us to maybe 
the Ephesians chapter two passage fits. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. See, Jesus came to make us alive. He came to forgive spectacular sins and secret ones, to forgive betrayal and denial and suicide and shame and liars and runaways and thieves because of love, because of love. And there's that story as Peter, after Jesus is risen from the dead, he's in the boat fishing and he sees Jesus on the shore and Peter longs for Jesus, even though he's, you know, denied him and he jumps into the water in his clothes and he swims to shore and he's got to, you know, get warmed up by the fire. And then Jesus and Peter go for this walk and Jesus three times asks him for his three denials. You know, do you love me? Peter says, I love you. You know, I love you. And then Jesus said, well, feed my sheep, care for the church. That's how you could show your love in this way. Now, if Jesus can, can love betrayers and deniers, my question is, why do we have such a hard time loving one another? If Jesus can do it. And I know, you know, I'm not Jesus, but it's hard, isn't it? We have a hard time. And so this leads me to my discussion question, which is this. What do you think is the biggest block to the church loving one another? What do you think is the biggest block? Why do you think it's so hard for us to love one another in the big church? I don't just mean our church because, I mean, we all love each other, of course. But, you know, in the big church, why is it so hard? And uh, see if you can come up with an answer for that. Um. So the other thing we see kind of in the middle of these, you know, betrayer, denier bookends is this new command, this new command to love. Uh, there was a study done. This is a real study. So sometimes I just say funny things and I make them up, but this was real. So it's called the Grant Study. And it was done. That's one of the guy's names who came up with the study. And it's from 1938. And it was a, a group of researchers from Harvard University. They set out to answer the question of what habits lead to a fulfilling life. And so they chose this group of, now just remember, it's like 1938. So it was 268 men, because in 1938, I guess that's like the most important people to study, but no women. So th men, 268 men. And then they studied them for 75 years. And they were studied on this range of psychological, physical, economic, and spiritual characteristics. And um, the Grant study became the longest running longitudinal study of human development. So it's this like 75 years. I mean, it's just crazy long that you would study anything for that long. And, and so with the remaining participants now reaching, they were getting to their 90s, their early 90s. 
George Vaillant, he was the, the last acting director of the study. He decided to bring it to a close and publish their findings. And they did that in a book called The Triumph or Triumphs of Experience is what it's called. And they learned that, um, that there are all these different factors like you know, education, a stable marriage, healthy lifestyle choices that were all helpful to a good life. But there was only one thing that mattered, really mattered to having a vibrant life, like exceptionally great, vibrant. And that one thing was love. This is what they found. The capacity to love and to be loved, they would have said, based on the study, was the point of human existence. That's what they found. And so to me, it's not a coincidence that Jesus, in the middle of this talk about traitors and deniers, he commands them to love, to love one another. He says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another by this. Everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. Now, you know, he says that it's a new command. It's funny how consumed we can be with keeping commands. At least I am. I, I want to please God. I want to do what he wants me to do. And so, so if there are commands, I want to know what they are. And I want to have my list and make sure I'm doing them or not doing them, depending on what the command is. But, um, you know, this is what we do. We trying to do the right thing. And so it's interesting to me that, that we have this new command from the mouth of Jesus that's clear and it's concise. It's very clear. And yet it gets little airtime compared to a lot of other things we think we're supposed to be doing. This command to love. Preston Sprinkle says, if you get the Bible right, but you get love wrong, you get it all wrong. <laughs> It sounds a lot like what Paul says, doesn't it? In 1 Corinthians 13, where he says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I have to the poor, all I possess to the poor. I mean, do you hear this? If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship so I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. I gain nothing. I am nothing. The message says I'm bankrupt without love. And I wonder what would happen if we spent our efforts on love instead of many other things we think we're supposed to be doing. Our focus and our effort. And that leads me to my next discussion question, which is this. What do you think Christians are known for? <laughs> Not do we wish we were known for, but what do you think Christians are known for? What do people say about us in the community and in the world? What do you think we're known for? Let's go to group. Well, um, we're, we're given this new command, but we're not just told to do this thing without any kind of description to it. Jesus says, you know, love one another as I have loved you. And 
there's this, this picture of the kind of love Jesus would compel us to. Um, there's a story I know lots of you have probably heard about uh, this eight-year-old boy. I think I'm sure it's a made-up story, but an eight-year-old boy who had a younger sister and she's got leukemia or she's dying. And he's told, you know, if she, if she can get a blood transfusion, then she'll live. And so they go to this, you know, little boy and they say, you know, your blood is compatible. Would you be willing to give, you know, a pint of your blood to your sister? And the little boy like thinks about it for a few minutes. And then he's like, okay, yeah, I'll do it. And uh, so they go to the hospital and they go into the room and they put them both on their beds for the transfusion and, you know, hook them up to an IV and hook her up and, and start, start taking the blood. And, um, and so they get a pint and they go and start giving it to her and he's sitting there, you know, with his eyes closed and the doctor comes over and says, you know, how are you doing? Are you okay? And he says, yeah, I'm just wondering how soon until I die. <laughs> his, his gift is he thinks is unto death, but actually it's not, it feels that way maybe. And I think I related to that. Sometimes I think we feel like this love we're called to, to give is like a willingness to die. And yet the picture always is toward resurrection and toward life. Jesus gave his own life, but we're not all dying, literally dying. You know, some people do, but, but it's this willingness to die, a surrender. And this kind of love uh, compels us. It's, a, it's a, an extravagant and sacrificial love, but it's leading toward life, life for us and life for others. Ephesians 3, 17 to 19 says, Paul writes, I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and high and long and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. You know, we love because he loved. There's no other way around it. We love because he loved. We love because he loved us first. And we grasp and know this love of Jesus. We are filled by it. And then it overflows from us to a needy world. This is the greatest apologetic. Another thing we wrestle a lot with, you know, we wrestle with like, how do we please God? What do I need to do to please God? And then another thing we wrestle with is how do I share my faith? I think a lot of us struggle with this. Like, I don't know what to say. I don't know what they're going to say. I don't know what they're going to ask me and how will I answer it? I, I don't know. It just seems so hard. Or how do I start a conversation? It just seems really, really difficult. Jesus says, start here love one another, <laughs> love, love Christians first. Try, try that. That's a good start. And then love everyone. Preston Sprinkle again says the greatest apologetic is love. I mean, it's the thing that speaks the most. No one, I think if we, if you met a family where the siblings all fought each other or were, you know, putting each other down or like, are unkind to each other and there's sarcastic disdain and criticism and argument. No one wants to be in that family, let alone near that family. Like it just, it's so like repugnant to us when we see that. And yet if you imagine a family where 
the siblings are encouraging to each other or they're genuinely caring or compassionate or supportive. And when they do fight, they ask for forgiveness and they genuinely make up or they can respectfully disagree with each other. That's the kind of family you'd be like, oh man, I want to know what they're doing. How did they get that? Or I want to be part of that. That seems appealing to us. And the same thing is true of the church. You know, it's easy to divide. It's easy to leave. It's easy to be offended or to criticize or to complain. And it's challenging to us to love because, I mean, our group was a good example. We talked about the reality of love is like, it's not just a concept. It's like people. And these people are challenging. There's all sorts of challenges with loving actual people who can do and be all sorts of ways. Since we are all sinners, we should find a way to love all people. And the answer Jesus gives us is that this love would be his love poured out through us to the world, regardless of our theological beliefs, regardless of our spectacular sins or small ones that love would win in the end, his love through us to each other and to the world. In conclusion, we're commanded to love one another as the greatest apologetic. Uh, this story has betrayers and deniers. You know, Jesus, it turns out, picked a couple of doozies. Uh, Judas, who's maybe a bad egg, uh, he commits an egregious betrayal. He really, really does commit an evil act in what he does. And we don't know why. Peter, the blusterer who denies he ever knew Jesus three times. And still Jesus knew they were going to do this. And he loved them anyway. He chose to love them anyway. And he gives us this new command. Even with the new and clear command, we still get confused. We still ask the question, what's important? What are we supposed to do now that we're Christians? And the answer is love. Love. Without it, we'll miss everything. This call to love isn't in our own strength, but in the overflow and the example of as Jesus loved us, we love each other. This is the greatest witness. This is the greatest argument that we would love each other practically, sacrificially, every day, without prejudice, just love. Let's pray.